The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, we come before you as the holy, holy, holy God. We just pray along with uh, your angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Father, as we come before your word this morning, help us to remember that. What, what a fitting song before this sermon. To remember that we are uh, sinners before a holy God. Strengthen us, Father. Uh, strengthen me as I preach your word this morning. I pray that your spirit uh, would be at work uh, in my heart, in the congregation's heart, through the, through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been going through a, a series this summer on misunderstood passages. Don't get too distracted with the slide. I know, it's one of my favorite movies. But so don't, you, know, you start playing the whole scene in your head. But yeah, the, the basic idea is we're, we're looking at various passages that we typically maybe misuse, misunderstand. And this morning, uh, you can find your way to Second Thessalonians. That's where we'll be uh, looking at. But before we get into that, I want to just kind of humble us as I've been praying about this morning, as I've been talking about this morning. I want to humble us first just before the Word of God because what we're looking at this morning is, is a heavier topic. We're talking about hell. We're talking about the wrath of God. A 16th century pastor, one of my favorite quotes says, we must not think that God does a, a thing because it is good and right, but rather the thing is good and right because God does it. We must not think that God does a thing that is, uh, because it is good and right, but rather the thing is good because good and right because God does it. This is really forcing us not to judge things based on our standard, but to look at it to say God has done that. God says in his word that he will do that. Therefore, because my God is holy, 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 the very thing he is doing is good and right and holy. There are many things in Scripture that if we had our way, if we applied our earthly wisdom to it, we would probably change. Speaking about hell and the wrath of God upon the lost is probably one of those. We would say, no, no, that seems harsh. But if we approach this topic that way, applying our own wisdom to it, we, we fall short of understanding who our God is. We take a bit of a side note here. As we sang um, a couple of songs ago, Rock of Ages makes me go back to Exodus 34 where God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and as he goes by Moses, he declares who he is. And in Psalm 34 verse 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, 
This is God speaking. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And a lot of us would love to stop right there. But we, I hope, desire not to worship a God of our own creation, but to worship the true and holy and living God. And he goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We cannot judge these things based on what we would like but we need to humble ourselves before the word of God. Say, this is who God has revealed himself to be. Therefore, it is good and right. Psalm 119 says, teach, teach me good judgment and knowledge. For I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I, w- I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. This is something I've, I've found myself praying more and more as I, become, as I come before the word, as I bring my family before the word of God. I've been praying, Father, help me to be humble and believe what your word has to say. I don't want, I don't want to come before it with my own wisdom as my lens, I want to come before it in humility, seeking the truth about who God is. So this morning, as we, as we talk about hell, as we talk about the wrath of God, I'm going to be going through a lot of scriptures. I think it's something that we probably don't talk about enough in church. I'm not talking just about CBC. I'm talking about most churches. I think it's A.W. Pink in his short little book on the attributes of God, when he comes to talk about the wrath of God, he says there are, more, uh, there are more references to the wrath and anger of God in the scriptures than there are to his love and mercy. And yet, we don't want to talk too much about the wrath of God or hell. It's a scary reality, but again, this is where we have to humble ourselves. This is where we have to say, no, I want to know my God. Who is this God who has adopted me, who has brought me into his family? I want to know him, and I want to see that what he does is good and right and holy. The outline I'll be using this morning comes from... The Heidelberg Catechism. It's, it's the, the Heidelberg Catechism is w- one of my favorite because it's so pastoral. And a lot of, a lot of you are probably familiar with it, with, with the very first question, if you've been here for any length of time. Maybe not knowing that we're referencing the Heidelberg Catechism. But we often talk about question one. Question one says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And a shortened answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But then question two categorizes what the following 127 catechisms 
can, will fall into. And the question is this. How many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? The answer is this. Three things. The first, how great my sin and misery is. The second, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery. The third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. People have shortened this into three words. And this is the outline for my sermon. I want to give this to you ahead of time because I'm going to be laying a lot of the first one on you. And it's this, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. If we want to get rid of the guilt and just look at the grace and gratitude, well, the whole thing has come tumbling down. Grace, the very meaning of grace is meaningless if we don't understand why we need grace. Gratitude, well, what are we supposed to be thankful for if we don't know what we have been rescued from, if we don't understand our guilt? So, even though I'm going to lay a lot of guilt on you, I want you to know that we're not going to stay there, okay? One thing I love about doing communion every Sunday is the sermon kind of naturally needs to flow to communion. So we always end in this place of grace and gratitude. The other thing I just want to say before we start when we speak about sin and we speak about hell, we speak about the wrath of God, we can easily fall into that place where we start thinking, oh, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. Or, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this with so, so-and-so because they really need to hear this. It's not wrong to want someone to hear a sermon. It's not wrong for someone to want to, someone else to hear the word of God. But if you are not hearing today that this is to you, then you are not understanding it. I want, I, I want the weight of guilt for a moment during the sermon to rest heavy on your shoulders. I want you to know the great rescue you have had in Christ. I want you to know why you can be, have thankfulness and gratitude toward your, our loving Father. So the argument, the misunderstood passage that we are looking at this morning is 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul is talking about uh, the second return of Christ. And he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The idea here that will often be said is this description that hell is eternal separation from God. And we're going to look at another passage 
You think of Christ on the cross, calling out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hell is eternal separation from God. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that is actually a very legitimate thing to say. Hell is separation, eternal separation from God. It is completely fine to say. So I'm not here today to tell you that if you have said hell is eternal separation from God, that, you're, that you have erred. But what I do want to do is make sure that when we say that, we are properly understanding what that separation is. Because if we misunderstand this passage, if we misunderstand this idea, we, we can create a false idea of, of God. And this is, obstructs our view, first, of just how horrendous our sin is. It obstructs our view of how marvelous then his grace is toward us. It obstructs our view to see how we live in the light of his grace. So ultimately, if we are mishandling this passage, if we are misunderstanding what it means to be separated from God in eternity, we, we risk diminishing the beauty of the gospel. So just so you know where I'm going, I want to show you today through Scripture that hell is eternal separation from God in the sense that those who suffer eternally will have zero grace, mercy, any of those things that are good and favorable, the love of Christ, they will have none of that. Separation from God in hell is separation from the good favor of God. It is not separation from his righteous wrath. And well, as we'll see, he's very much present. So first, we need to understand our guilt. The first area of guilt. Before you even have an opportunity to do anything good or bad, good or evil, is that Adam's guilt has been imputed to you. A lot of people don't like that. I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time on that today. But this is, this is what the teaching of Scripture is. Adam's guilt has been imputed to us. But if you complain about an, an imputed guilt, Adam's sin way back at the beginning, how can that be charged to my account? Well, I just said you had, you know, it's there before you had any chance to do good or evil. But guess what? You start doing evil right away. We have our, the guilt of our own sinfulness. The teaching of Scripture is we sin in thought, we sin in word, we sin in deed. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four asks, what is sin? And a sin is any want or lack of conformity 
or transgression or and transgression of the law of God. So it's not only breaking the law of God through our active sinning, but it's also not doing what God has commanded us to do. We do this. This is the guilt of our own sin. So we have Adam's guilt. We have our own sinfulness. We can think of just all the overtly sinful things that we might uh, do, go, go about doing in life. Sometimes we don't accurately think of, though, our own self-righteousness in this category, but I think we definitely should. There is none righteous, no, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's self-righteousness. There's our own sin. We may think, and when we think of hell and the wrath of God, we may think of it being reserved for the kind of the worst people in history, the worst events in history. We think of Genghis Khan, maybe, responsible for probably upwards of 40 million deaths. Or we think of Hitler. Think of Nearly 11 million people killed in the Holocaust. We can think of the 60 plus million people killed through the act of abortion since 1973. And of course, you can add more to that number prior to 1973. And guess what? More to that number after 2022. You think of school shootings. You turn the news on and See just the senseless massacre of, of young elementary age children. But again, I said that we, our sinfulness is in thought, word, and deed. If you look at Matthew with me, Matthew chapter 5, very familiar passages, but I think we need to visit it again. Because if you didn't hear yourself in that list, this is where Christ makes it very, uh, very evident to us that we should count ourselves in the list of the sinful. Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We can't hold up the Hitlers of the world and think, at least I didn't do that. Because if we're honest with ourselves, probably most days in our thought life, we're guilty of murder. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We've sinned in thought, word, and deed. Now, Christ's teaching here does not lessen our guilt. Because if we take this... And then say, oh, we're all sinners. Hey, it's okay. We're all sinners. I'm guilty of that. 
I am guilty of diminishing the holiness of God by saying, it's okay, we're, we're all sinners. Christ isn't lessening the guilt of our sin by, by drawing these examples because as he goes on, verse 29 you can tell he's not lessening it. This is what he thinks of it. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So rather than lessening the seriousness of our guilt before God, this magnifies his holiness. It magnifies his righteousness. So what does then our sin deserve? Well, Christ, as we've seen here, talks about the fires of hell. Romans 6.23, we know that the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, 27, Paul says, if Paul's the author, I guess I just gave up my card, showed my cards there. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Matthew 25, then, as we speak about this judgment. Matthew 25, as Christ paints this picture of this last judgment and bringing the sheep and the goats before him. Just picking a few of the verses to read. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes into his glory, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, all the peoples, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Dropping down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So we know the wages of sin is death. We know that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And we have seen this judgment. So what is, what is hell? Well, we've just seen it's eternal. God has created us to be eternal beings. And you see this language where Christ says here in Matthew 25, 46, some will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There is an eternal punishment. Again, I, I want to bring, bring us before the word of God. I want us to see that this is what the word of God says. And as unfair as that might seem, Praise the Lord that we are not God. Because if I judged y'all based on my own wisdom, 
I probably would have been done with y'all a long time ago. I would have been done with myself a long time ago. I wouldn't be able to live with myself. This is God's judgment. Hell is eternal. Hell is separation from God, but this is where we have to ask ourselves, in what sense? Because first thing we know to be true about God is he is omnipresent. We have to deal with that big idea first. Part of God, part of the intrinsic, intrinsic nature of God is that he is omnipresent. He is all present. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. You can read for yourselves from Psalm 139, Jeremiah 23. In both of these passages, we see this all presence of God being revealed to us in the word. So we see that by necessity, you can't have a God who is simply all of a sudden not able to be all present. As I said a moment ago, total sep- this is the total separation that those in hell suffer is the total separation from the favor, the grace, and the mercy of God. Think of this. We talk about common grace. Think of Matthew chapter 5 where Christ says, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There is common grace right now operating in the world. God's common grace. It's a, so it's a restraining grace. We are not as bad as we possibly could be. There is a whole lot of evil in the world. I just detailed some of those. There is a whole lot of evil in the world. But God's grace, this common grace, even among sinners, is restraining evil. That's kind of mind-blowing. You want to have a snapshot on the heart of man, think about the, that God's common grace is at operation in the world, restraining evil. Well, in hell, there's no common grace. All glimpses of God's grace and love and mercy are withheld. Instead, it's the, the punishment, the eternal punishment that is in hell is the full weight of God's righteous anger. I want to read a few passages just to help us understand this righteous anger. Matthew 3. Matthew 3, beginning with verse 7. John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Romans, if I get through these quickly here, Romans 1. As Paul's painting, for this, painting us this picture in the first couple, couple chapters of Romans, where we get to the end of Romans, and we're, if, you, if you read Romans and you say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not those people, you've misunderstood the first couple chapters of Romans. Because Paul, in his first couple chapters, is getting us to this point where we put our hands over our mouth, say, woe is me, or I am ruined. Romans 1, 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, the Old Testament, we sometimes, you know, we, I've been reading most everything right now out of the New Testament. Sometimes we, we think, oh, yes, God is wrathful in the Old Testament. He's loving in the New Testament. It's not, that's not the case. God does not change. Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And finally for this, portion of God's wrath. Look at Revelation. Revelation 14 verse 9 And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And we sometimes have a almost kind of deistic approach to hell where like, yeah, God throws them away over there and just kind of lets it take care of itself. Or maybe you have the picture of Satan with his pitchfork as the ruler of hell. No. He is there being punished alongside everyone else. It's not his dominion. 
This is God's dominion. And that should be a heavy burden on us as we think of our guilt, that that would be our eternal punishment if it were not for Christ. Suffering under the full fury of the wrath and righteous anger of the Lamb. So we might ask, well, is God unjust? We think, we think of God as love. Brennan's going to look at this in a few weeks. We can say God is love. It would be incorrect to say God is wrath. But it is absolutely correct to say God is righteous. God is actually perfectly and infinitely righteous and holy and just. And because God is perfectly and infinitely righteous and holy and just, he must pour out that righteous and holy and just wrath on all that falls short of his glory. Exodus 34, he says, I will, as I read, I will by no means clear the guilty. Romans 9, 14, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? As we wrestle with these heavy truths and, and kind of think, how can this be? As Damien brought up last week, this is right on the heels of that passage where God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Are we going to accuse the, our God, the one and true God of injustice? By no means. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This side of eternity, we may have a difficult time understanding the justice of God. But I promise that when we stand face to face with Christ, all of his judgments will be seen by us as true and just. And actually, it will well up in us a hallelujah. We will no longer question God's justice. We will praise God's justice. And I would say that we as Christians ought to have a sense of that even now. Where we can be in this sinful world and you turn on the news, you, you pull up your news feed, or you see inside yourself 
As you look at these things, we need, we need to, say, to say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We should have a sense that we read in the Psalms. Like, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? This does, this does not, that it doesn't even seem right. It's not right. Where is justice? So I would say even now, we should have this cry, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. Well, the question we have to ask ourselves then is who? If this heavy burden of guilt is on us, who then can escape God's wrath? Look back at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a couple phrases we can think of. We can think of those who are outside of Christ and those who are in Christ. How does 2 Thessalonians 1.9, these people that will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, why are they there? Well, they are there because they are outside of Christ. Verse 8 says that this is on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We think of all the, the sin that we might have piled on in our minds through all of this. But what keeps someone from suffering that eternal wrath of the Lamb? It's not a comparison. It's simply those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And this turns us to grace. Because guess what? Praise the Lord, the opposite is true for those of us who are in Christ. Romans, Romans chapter 3. Some familiar verses here. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This word propitiation, Christ has been set forward, put forward as our propitiation. Propitiation means he is satisfied the wrath of God. Propitiation is a satisfaction. How are we in Christ? 
how are we rescued from this eternal punishment in hell? Well, Christ suffered that infinite punishment for us on the cross. This is where we hear that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not saying, why have you left me? Because first off, again, as we look back at kind of God's all presence, this is another one of those things that we can't tear apart the very fabric of the Trinity at this moment. We can't say that for, for all eternity they were in perfect unity and then all of a sudden it was broken. No. They, you, you, you tear apart the very, what is intrinsic to God. You can't do that. It wasn't a pulling away. It was Christ in his human nature suffering not the separation of God but the full wrath of God on him. The wrath of your sins. I hope you've been sitting here under our guilt section not thinking about someone else but thinking about yourself. Thinking about all the ways you sin whether actively or Passively in your thoughts or words or deeds, all that you have ever done, all that you've done this morning, all that you will ever do. How in the world do we escape the wrath of God? The wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus Christ at the cross. On what you deserved was poured out on the perfect spotless lamb of God who deserved none of it. He lived a perfect life of full obedience. He came and fulfilled the law on our behalf. And yet he willingly and with a joy set before him went to the cross. And the, the easy part of it was having the nails put through his wrists and through his feet. That was the easy part. The part that we needed was the part of the Father's holy just and righteous wrath poured out on his own son. How do we escape the wrath of God? Only through Jesus Christ. If those who enter into eternal punishment under the wrath of the Lamb enter because they do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the opposite holds true. Those who enter into eternal life are those who know God. And how do you know God? Well, no man comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. How, how do you get ushered into eternity where you are enveloped in the love and grace and mercy of God, it's because Jesus Christ hung on a cross in our place and absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved. He took it out of the way. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his, shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in his perfect life, faith in his atoning work on the cross, faith in his resurrection, faith that at this very moment, our Savior is sitting enthroned on high, bearing the scars of his crucifixion. He sits on high even now as our great high priest. If separation from the mercy, grace, and love of God is what those outside of Christ face, we are given the opposite picture in Revelation 21 of what we will enjoy. Verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The opposite of separation from the favor of God is the full enjoyment of the presence of his love and goodness toward us in Christ. So what should our response be? This is the gratitude section. What is our response to such a heavy truth? I'll try to be quick here. First off, as we consider the weight of our sin, not according to our judgment, but according to the judgment of our holy God. It should cause us to flee to him. First John 1, 9, he invites us to do this. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We should fear God. We should, we should revere him. We, we think that we maybe shouldn't you shouldn't dwell on the wrath of God as when we're believers, but this is not how the apostles, how the, how the writers of Scripture view it. Hebrews 12, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The fact that we are safe in the cleft of the rock, safe in Jesus Christ, should not blind us that our God is still a consuming fire. 
So we revere him. Should praise him for rescuing us from his wrath as you read that passage in 2 Thessalonians. Again, verse 9, they will, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. We will marvel at the rescue that God has accomplished through Christ. As we consider his wrath, as we consider that he has rescued us, brought us into a life that is everlasting, that we look forward to his, his everlasting presence and his love, it should create in us a desire to hate sin as much as our heavenly father hates sin. Colossians. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Do not be fooled. The wrath of God is coming against our sin. So even though we are safe in Christ, we should put these things away. Paul reminds us, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, with it, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Romans 12, 9, Paul tells us to abhor, to hate what is evil. We should praise him for his justice. As I said earlier, we should long for Christ's return. This is why Paul speaks of Philippians, to live as Christ, but he says, oh, to die is gain. He says, I'm hard-pressed against the two. I'm going to stay for your sake. Oh, but to be with Christ. And he goes on in Philippians. says, he's counted everything to be rubbish, to be dung, to be trash, to know Jesus Christ. We should long for Christ's return. We should long to be present with him where all our tears will be wiped away, where we will, we will praise him and sing that hallelujah for his, his great justice. And all we can say at that moment is, my only boast is in Christ. We're not going to say, ooh, I'm here because I'm better than those people. No. I am here only because of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Now this is a difficult truth for us to wrestle with and I think one reason it's so difficult is because we all have loved ones who deny 
who do not know God, who are not obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't want our loved ones to suffer an eternal weight of the wrath of the Lamb. How awful is that? How absolutely dreadful is that? But we cannot take a truth like this and put it against our feelings of the love for our loved ones who are perishing and say, well, therefore, I'm going to ignore what the word of God says and, and imagine that that's not so. No, rather, believe the word of God and let it be the thing that says, I want to share the love of Christ with that person. Because the only thing that separates them from me and our eternal destinations, again, is Christ. So the very thing I want to do, the very thing I, did, I should desire to do is to share the love of Jesus Christ with them, to share the gospel with them. Since the very beginning of time with the fall, The very first thing that, um, the very first thing that Adam did when he fell was what? He hid. He fled. This is John the Baptist again saying to the scribes and Pharisees as they're coming, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What John is doing there, though, is telling them to come. That the very, our, our sin has, again, since Adam, driven us. We've tried to run and flee from God. Ah, oh, his wrath. And we flee and flee and flee and just perpetuate it. But the very thing that God calls us to do is not flee in the presence of his wrath, but to run to him, to fall at his feet and beg for mercy. Psalm 73, it's one of those great psalms, of kind of why is all this injustice happening in the world? Well, the psalmist says in, in verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Our response to the wrath of God, to the dread of, of, the, of the fires of hell should not be to flee from him, but to run to him. As we come to, to the communion table this morning, to the Lord's Supper, this is a reminder for us not to flee from God, but to run to him. We have no other comfort, no other hope in life and in death, but in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.
And how do we run to him? How is his wrath settled so that we no longer have to suffer his wrath but in the blood of Jesus Christ? So we come to this table as a family. For those who don't believe this message, for those who don't know God and are not, who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, this table is not for you. This is a family meal. We celebrate this not because it is earning us additional brownie points. It's not because it's checking just something off our list so that we can put it on our resume to say, yes, I am good with God. No, it is a simple reminder. It's a confession. It is a proclamation as we take it together that we are in Christ Jesus, that we have no other hope but in him, that we have fled to him, that in him the wrath of God has been fully satisfied once and for all so that we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and have no other boast but in him. So again, if you don't believe, I would just encourage you to allow these elements to pass by you. And I, I would encourage you, if you don't believe and you're maybe hearing this, just don't know, like, well, how, how then am I saved? If you're asking that question I asked, how then am I saved from the wrath to come? Well, come speak to me. Come speak to someone. I'll show you how the word of God, the beauty of faith in Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, enjoy these elements. Enjoy the fact that that eternal separation from God, from the love and favor of God, would be yours for all eternity, if not for the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Let me pray. Father, I, I just pray that you would Allow the, the many uh, words this morning, the, the passages that we have read, we, I, I know that your word does not return void. So I pray that you would work through the preaching of your word, through the reading of your word this morning, that you would work in, through your Holy Spirit to bring those to saving faith who do not believe. And for those of us who do believe, Father, that we, we would all the more see the beauty of what you have done through your son, the beauty of your gospel, that we would not diminish it by trying to excuse away your wrath, but we would rest knowing that you have hidden us away in Christ, in the cleft of the rock. You have protected us that for all eternity we will live in your presence in the fullness of joy forevermore. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.